Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today is a first. This is the first episode that I've ever had sponsored by anybody. And uh, there's a reason that I haven't really pursued that. I I don't know. I'm, I'm not too keen on it. It doesn't make a ton of sense for this show. This show has always seemed like a better, better model for listener support, for Patreon support, which has gone fantastic. And I've never really regretted not going the sponsor route for this show but this is special uh there is an organization called blueprint 1543 and uh sari concepcion the director of communications there uh, you might remember her from for instance the enneagram episode she's also been on uh, many patron exclusive episodes uh, so patrons will have heard her voice as well and their company is sponsoring this episode they have a bunch of free academic level courses around psychology and theology Uh, it's really really good stuff it is very high quality stuff and at the end of this episode i have a short interview with sari about those courses and kind of what they're up to at blueprint 1543 so if you're interested in that uh, stay till the end after my conversation with brad strawn speaking of that conversation we basically have kind of two conversations in one The first half is a broad conversation about 
how Brad got into psychology and theology and the integration of the two. What was what was his story there? And really, how does he see the integration of theology and psychology in general? And then after the break, we pick up a topic, basically Christian existentialism. Don't get too turned off by the philosophical nature of that term. But we talk about how a Christian could be an existentialist, how a Christian could do existential therapy. And that's not just uh, a conversation for practitioners. I promise there are interesting things for any listener um, in that second half of the conversation. Generally speaking, it is a bit more of a academic, if that's the right word, a little bit more mentally challenging episode than usual. But I think for the most part, Brad and I did a good job of defining terms, explaining any name dropping. I always try and do that as as well as possible and not uh, leave people behind that don't have, you know, bachelor's degrees in, in these subjects. But I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Brad and with Sari. So stick around uh, for both conversations. And yeah, thank you guys for accepting the new schedule of every other week. I am trying to be a healthy individual, uh, do a good job in school, do a good job with my clients, do a good job as a podcaster, and do a good job as a co-parent um, of Soren. So I appreciate the patience. Let's get into it with Brad. Brad Strawn, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Great to be here. In a in a slightly different life where either Fuller offered an online doctorate of psychology or where I lived in Southern California, <laughs> I think I would be your student and I would just be hanging out with you and Pam King uh, every week. <laughs> talking about the stuff that we're about to talk about. But this is not that world. I don't live in California, and Fuller does not have an online option. No, we do not. But I'm very grateful to our mutual friend, uh, Sari Concepcion, for introducing us via her work with Blueprint 1543. You know, she used to be at Fuller, where you teach, uh, and where Pam King teaches, recent guest as well. So that's Mm -hmm. a little bit of context for, for listeners. And you are a major part of this I don't know if initiative is the right word. It's a degree you can get. It's a focus of Fuller to have an integration of theology and clinical or research psychology, like serious psychology. Right. It's an advanced degree you can get. And you're at the center of that. It's it's your face on the web page, right? <laughs> so yeah. I want to start by asking for you personally which came first, theology or psychology, yeah. and how? Yeah, great question. I, I think I'd have to start with theology. I mean, I, I'm a product of the church. I grew up in a Christian home where my, my parents instilled a deep love of faith and ecclesiology, church in me. Um, wasn't perfect. Obviously, I ended up in psychology. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But it, what it did in me was create a kind of sense of wanting to care for people and for the needs of people. And, um, you know, so a little sort of, I'll, I'll try to keep my, my journey brief, but I went into college thinking I was going to be a physician and uh, which many of us do. And uh, after a year of organic chemistry and cutting up cats, I decided this didn't have much to do with people. 
Uh, and then so I was stuck with the conundrum, do I go into theology or do I go into psychology? And uh, I went into psychology and really loved it. Ironically, after I graduated, I went back into ministry for a couple of years as a youth minister. Yeah. Which further confirmed my need to go into psychology. <laughs> so uh, then I ended up at Fuller as a student myself uh, in the 90s, early 90s. And there was an interesting transformation there, Dan, you might be you might particularly be interested in. There's a way in which I think religion and theology did a good job telling me what was wrong, but didn't tell me what to do about it in some ways. And at least in my evangelical kind of white world, let's, let's let, be specific. No, let me have you say that again, because this is <laughs> we're getting a lot of overlap here in our stories. Say that again. Yeah. So I, I feel like there's a way in which theology and religion did a good job telling me what was wrong, yeah. but not what to do about it. Other than to know more, try harder and be better. Yeah. All very kind of intellectual cognitive tasks. And I tried all that and, and I didn't feel in some ways that it was working. So there was really a period there for me in graduate school studying clinical psychology where I, I would say that psychology and maybe even psychoanalysis became my religion or my religious language for a while. It replaced mm. my theological language. Um, now, thankfully, I was at a place... I was at Fuller in the time of people like Lou Smeads and Newt Maloney and Richard Hunt and Arch Hart and some of the early great integrators of psychology and theology. And through that and even post Fuller, I began to find a way back into uh, integrating my theological language with my new acquired psychological language. But together, I found those to be a really powerful model of transformation. And that's what really lights me up. It's the transformational moment, whether that's in teaching, whether that's in clinical practice, which I do, whether that's in spiritual formational settings and practices. What I'm most excited about is that moment of transformation, when things begin to shift for people, when light bulbs go on, when hearts are strangely warmed, however you might want to talk about that. That's, that's what really gets me excited. There's a lot in there that I want to respond to. So we're going to spend some time here. <laughs> the first is that your story is so interesting. My, my dad, who's been a MFT marriage family therapist for 40 years now or so mm -hmm. his story that the way he tells it is that he was in ministry working with, I think he was working with adults. And then he's like, Oh, these, these people are getting messed up earlier in their life. So he started working with youth. And I think mm -hmm. he was like a junior high pastor. And then he's like, no, this stuff is starting like when they're kids in their, in the home. And so he went back to school and got his master's in psychology and started working with the families. Mm -hmm. So it's a, I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's more detail that is left out of that <laughs> sure. basic trajectory, but it, it's kind of a similar thing to you in, insofar as you went back into youth ministry and then you're like, no, actually I need to, I got to go back to psychology. Was <laughs> that because of like my dad identifying the issues or was that more of a, uh, maybe I'm not as cut out for working with kids as I thought and, or, or being a minister, like what was your experience of that? Yeah, I think personally, it probably was a combination of those things. I mean, I, I could, you know, the kids who were always in my office, the kids who were hanging out after youth group was officially over right. were the ones where you could tell, you know, they didn't want to go home or there was stuff going on at home. And, and even when I was in high school myself, you know, in, in a lot of, therapist types will describe this, right? People would gravitate toward you yeah. uh, because you were a listener, you were an empath. And 
Uh, I mean, I remember stories specifically of just being sort of overwhelmed by the pain and suffering of some of my, in my own peers. And then as a youth pastor and thinking, I don't, I don't really know what to do here, but something needs to be done. I do think I will say this. I think that being pastor is pro- being a pastor is, is perhaps one of the hardest jobs in the world. hundred percent. And so it's not really a job I have ever felt really called to. Like I feel a calling to preach and I am a part-time pastor at my church and I preach about every six weeks. We have a preaching team and I love that. And so I do engage in some pastoral ministries. I also kind of oversee our small group ministries, uh, our Wednesday evening offerings. So I, you know, I'm one of those people I was talking to another psychologist friend of mine the other day at another similar school. And we both said, you know, there's something about our multiplicity that I don't think allows us to wear just one hat. So there's okay. something in there as well. <laughs> well, I thought that we were going to start working through these items one by one, but you've just added more items now, Brad, <laughs> to the to the conversational uh, checklist here. Yeah. The first is that Let's talk about this kind of call to ministry. And then I also do want to talk about multiple hats and stuff, because that also really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. So I felt a call to ministry before I started my PsyD program. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I've told this on the on the podcast before. I've certainly told a lot of people in, in real life that I checked that against friends of mine who were in ministry mm-hmm. and four or five of them and to a person they all said, yeah, Dan, I can totally see that for you. Also, probably not a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And, uh, you know, they might have meant the same thing by that, different things by that. I think they were all right. Mm-hmm. And I was smirking to myself when you said, I do feel a call to teaching, but also a pastor's job is an awful job. So, I mean, isn't it a little <laughs> bit convenient? I mean, I, I'm including myself in this, of course, Brad. Because here I am, you know, doing didactic work on a podcast and uh, I'm actually preaching. I'm preaching at a church in Orange County in October, you know, so I also have that. But like, right. Aren't we getting the best of both worlds then in that case? <laughs> Is that the height of privilege of ministry privilege? Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, the, the, now you're opening up doors around the issues of privilege, right? I mean, yeah. I'm doing it mostly in a, I'm winking. (laughs) Right, 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 right. You know, I think that the call I feel like if you, if you say, what's your ultimate call, Brad? And and I felt this strongly, I don't know. This was a new sort of iteration of this 10 years ago was I just felt God say, be helpful. Hmm. Like whatever setting you're in, whatever you're doing, whatever doors open to you, be helpful. And so I feel like, you know, again, in my local church at this present time, the way I have been invited to be helpful is to preach, yeah. is to teach Sunday school, is to help think through, you know, kind of transformational group opportunities. But I don't feel like anyone or God is saying, you know, you're, you're taking the easy way out, man. Get in the trenches there and really do the hard work. Because I think there's other people who are constitutionally better equipped for that. You know, we can kind of joke as therapists that, you know, we're really good at 50 minute intimacy. And I think I'm really good at that, actually. (laughs) But I know about me that I need breaks and I need to be able to go away and I need to be able to take care of me in particular ways that allows me to do the kind of work with people who are traumatized, who will wear their pastors out, you know. Um, Mm. And so I feel like what I do as a clinician also aids ministers in the trenches in a daily way. Um, and so I feel like there's just this recipro- reciprocity, you know, 
and that, that we are the body of Christ, not just me. It's not all contained within me. I can't be everything, but you've got something you do. I got something I do. My pastor's got something he or she does. The lay folks have things they need to do and they need to be you know, encouraged and brought up in that. And so I, I've moved past any sort of guilt that I have to do at all. I think my call is to figure out who God particularly gifted me to be and to faithfully move into, into that space. Yeah, I, I both 100% agree with you. And I think about Thomas Merton, who said that, or anyway, this is James Martin's uh, interpretation of Thomas Merton. I heard it through him. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't, I haven't read this particular <laughs> Merton bit, but, but basically Merton saying that like to become like Christ is to become your true self, right, which is, right. which is to say not like everyone else. Right. Right. So if the body, as you're saying, is diverse, if you become maximally Christ-like yourself, it won't just be a blandness that everyone who's like Christ is indistinguishable from each oh, other. Oh, heaven forbid, yeah. But actually it's a it's a specialization of personality, of job, right. of yes. you know, of of kingdom work, whatever you want yes. to call it. Yes. And so I love that. I'm also at the same time cognizant of the fact that I am operating on a tremendous amount of privilege, both in my upbringing, Mm -hmm. in my younger years when I didn't know myself well enough or my skills well enough to like, you know, know what my career would be or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. then even today, the fact that, well, I happen to be good at like having a podcast that people are willing to pay for. And I Mm -hmm. happen to be good enough to become a therapist, which is a good paying job. And a lot of the work that, for instance, pastors have to do week in, week out is is the kind of work that most people don't want to do grieving by deathbeds and burying children and just, and like dealing with mentally ill people who just have no other connection, but their church. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I also want to like, just, you know, I do, I agree with you. Sure. 100%. But I'm also like, I, I fight with this kind of, it's not quite survivor's guilt. It's like privilege guilt or something like that. uh, Right. Pretty, pretty regularly. Right. Well, and I don't know if you're, you're, you're asking me what I do with my guilt, but. um, (laughs) Oh, please. Yes. (laughs) I think I've been really helped to move sort of past guilt and toward responsibility. Right. So that's good. One of my good friends, Steve Sandage at Boston university, I remember him one time saying, you know, I don't feel guilty for being a white man, but I do recognize with that comes a certain kind of responsibility, particularly as a follower of Christ. Right. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, how do I provide, for example, you know, free consultation to every pastor I run into or where I speak at places and say, hey, if, if, if I can be helpful to you, email me. You know, I'm not going to charge you for that. Yeah. Um, I don't need to do that. I've got enough privilege and you know, stuff to, elsewhere. Or, right. or how, can I, you know, how can I consult or how can I try to create opportunities for those in the trenches or one of my real future hopes is that I'm going to do more writing for the church and more accessible kinds of things for people in those trenches. And then even as an academician now at at this point in my life, how do I take my privilege and create space for younger clinicians, younger professors, people of color, women? How do I open those doors? And I want to say that carefully. I hope you know what I mean. Like, how do I, how do I create space for those really good people to have, to be able to walk into places where maybe they haven't been able to walk into before. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so that's a kind of generativity issue as well, too, right, as we get older and, and further in our career and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then also as we get even older and start looking at passing the baton on to the next generation. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And not just sort of clinging on and publishing as many papers, you know, right, as right. the first author as you can, you know, all that right, legacy right. versus genuinely helping who's next kind of thing. Exactly. I'll just skip over this and say the multiple hats thing that you said is so true of me. It's almost a joke <laughs> that I, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever get past it. I want to I want to dig in on this. Theology was good at showing you what was wrong, but not what to do about it other than no more try better, basically pray more, read your mm -hmm. bible more. Mm -hmm. There's a few angles here. One of the things I thought of in which I resonate is, you know, William James, the uh famous philosopher and psychologist and cataloger of religions. He delineated his, his big delineation, his first sort of group in the taxonomy was six soul religion and healthy minded religion. Mm -hmm. um, and six soul religions or religious expressions or approaches start with what's wrong. So think Martin Luther, think St. Paul. I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. Or, you know, Luther, I am totally at mercy. I'm totally at in need of God's grace and mercy because I can't do this. I can't make myself holy before God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then healthy minded is like most of what Oprah is into. Some of which <laughs> I like, I mean, Rob Bell, sure. I think is a healthy minded sure. guy Yeah, yeah at, yeah. at core. Rob wants to say, look, just put those thoughts away, like move toward the good. And mm -hmm. as you focus on the good, you know, it will get better for you. You will become closer to God. And I resonate with both of those. I think, Honestly, they're both probably true, mm -hmm. and, and really you probably need some sort of combination. But for me, I always need some element of sick soul. I am drawn to making sense of the Holocaust, making mm -hmm. sense of whatever is going on that is like baffling and, and seemingly evil to me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't put it at the same level of the Holocaust, of course, but for me, what turned me towards psychology was Trump's election and support among um, mm. among evangelicals. And there is something about that that frankly is sick soul. If if we love a person like Donald Trump as an avatar, there's something wrong. And Trump supporters might even agree there's something wrong. They might locate it somewhere else. But there's a mm -hmm. problem when when mm -hmm. when that becomes the the end game. So I don't know, maybe if you have anything to say about this sort of the sick soul, healthy minded, that's a religious thing. That's not a psychological thing, at least not initially. And that's one way I think about this stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're inviting us to travel now into, you know, a lot of, I think Richard Beck's work. Yeah. Existentialism, which I know where you want to go. Mm -hmm. Terror management theory. And Richard I, Beck, by the way, for listeners, if you haven't gone, this is an early episode. It's called, what is it? Why I hate the sin, love the sinner is psychologically impossible. It's like somewhere in the first 30 episodes of this show. It's one of my favorite episodes ever. He is a psychologist and I think he's also an ordained pastor. He certainly leads a Bible study. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, Richard mm -hmm. Beck is the best. I'm going to have him back on pretty soon. I think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. You should. He's great. He's great. Very creative integrator. So, I mean, you're also raising the other issue, Dan, that 
like, what are we at our core? Are we theological beings? Are we psychological beings? Are these discrepancies, you know, that have been created, I think? And it's kind of raised its head again. One of the academic arguments around integration of psychology and theology is, like, is that even a thing? Like, yeah. you know, are we really responding to a disintegration that took place some time ago, probably around the Enlightenment? You know, we don't need to separate these things out in some ways. The way I think about, you know, the sick, sick soul and healthy Christians or healthy religion, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a psychological way in which we interact with our faith. Love that. Right? And so, you know, I love Richard's terms, you know, winter Christians and summer Christians. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, yeah. That, you know, some of us are kind of naturally psychologically bent toward a more winter Christian approach where we're asking these questions like why the Holocaust and why Trump and why do good things happen to bad people? And why do I find myself listening to, you know, primarily sad singer songwriters? And I find that to be religiously upbringing yeah, <laughs> rather right. than or, Hillsong, right? Right, right. Or depressing films is yeah, my version yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or the novels I'm attracted to and the poetry and yeah. and all of that. But also, and so there's a whole, as you know, probably, right, there's a whole growing uh, empirical literature, not only in terror management, but in Richard's work and then people post-Richard who are trying to understand, like, there's these, there's advantages and cons to, to lean into either one of those. And maybe we need both. Oh, yeah. And it really behooves, I think, if we go back to like psychology and, and faith and the church, I think there's some really powerful work to be done to help people in ministry understand the different ways that, that religious people use their faith, engage their faith, the, the purpose that their faith serves them. It doesn't undo the reality of faith. It doesn't mean faith is nothing but psychology or nothing but you know, as Freud would say, an illusion. But that doesn't mean that we don't engage our faith in psychological ways based on our histories and based on our temperaments. Or in ways in ways that can be described well with psychological language. Yes, right? yes. And Personality, then can be really, really helpful. Yeah. Nature, yeah. nurture. Yeah, right. Right, right. So that, you know, if I'm a winter Christian and I approach a text and then I start to preach on it, I can't help but preach from my winteriness, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is, what about all those summer Christians sitting in the room? You know, do I have them in mind? Do I, do I put something on them that they can't even grasp, you know? And what does that mean like for the life of a local body? I just think there's some really fascinating things to think about there. So yeah, I, 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 hope, I hope I'm kind of answering it. So well, I like great. those terms. Yeah, I like those terms. I think there's things we can do with them. I think you're right. We need all of it. It goes again back to the body of Christ is, is multiple, it's varied. We really do need each other. I think if, the, if, if you have a church only full of winter Christians, there's going to be some problems. And if you have a church full of only summer Christians, you're going to have some problems. <laughs> but it's hard for us to talk to each other. Right. Well, so you actually kind of got into this other thing I wanted to bring up when, when you said, you know, we're talking about how we can use psychological language to talk about stuff that we are experiencing in our faith life, right? It's meaningful language. And in your story, you said that what theology had done was sort of show you what was wrong, but not what to do about it. 
where the way that I came from theology to psychology, so I also was theology first, resonate with that part of your story, was actually in the descriptive language. So it was less about problem and solution, which mm-hmm. I do want to talk about that later because now I'm getting into that with working with clients. Mm-hmm. But how I got into it was more like description of mechanism. And I read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. Longtime listeners, just go ahead and skip ahead 60 seconds here. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I was like, why are these evangelicals supporting Trump? Why? But also, furthermore, like, why is it so hard to communicate across sort of political barriers? Which, by the way, that was in 2015 that I read that book. And six years later, it's it's just worse than it was then even. And I found that his language was so much more satisfying. His his explanation of the mechanism was, all right, we've got this dual, what we call dual process cognition, uh, rider and elephant. We have a, a big unconscious part of our brain. And then we have this little conscious part of our brain that often makes excuses for the unconscious part and sort of explains to ourselves and the outside world why we did what we did in an inaccurate way. Mm -hmm. Our inner lawyer, he calls it. And I was like, and then of course there's all the moral psychology of that book of the different moral foundations and how conservatives and liberals ultimately think different things matter morally. And that's why we talk past each other. And that's why a pro-choice person is, is focusing so much on sort of autonomy and not being uh, subjugated as a woman by men and by society and by the patriarchy and why a pro-life person is talking about the sanctity of human life. And they're just talking past each other because they're just drawing on different moral foundations. So I read that and it was just like, it was my, I always say it was my origin of species. It was my (laughs) moment of like a complete paradigm shift just in terms of like, how do we explain the world? And so because I'm so drawn to understanding and explanation and and all of that, that was the beginning of my turn, which a couple years later would result in me applying to a PsyD program. So I don't know. I'm curious, just any any thoughts you have on that? It's like it's a other side of the mirror sort of uh, or a different way of making the same jump uh, from theology into psychology for the two of us. Yeah, I mean, maybe the way to just respond is to go back to my own subjectivity about this. And I think, you know, we're talking about Christianity in quite general terms. Some of my writing has really been pressing into people to acknowledge their sort of theological tradition, where they're coming from. And I don't just mean denomination, because less and less we are denominational, but we that doesn't mean we don't have a, a tradition, right? So if I do that for myself, I come out of the American holiness tradition. And most people will know that the danger of the American holiness tradition is legalism. And so my history is replete with do's and don'ts, uh, and mostly don'ts. And so when I say the church was really good at telling me what not to do, that's what I mean. You don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, you don't have lustful thoughts. I mean, there's all this stuff, right, that you just don't do. And as I said, the, the, the mechanism for that was was try harder, no more, do better. And not even in a not even in a deep way, right? Not even in the way we can talk about engaging with the spiritual disciplines in in helpful ways. I've been critical of the way evangelicals engage the spiritual disciplines because I think again that's very, very thin. So the methodology of change what I found was quite thin. And what was missed was what you just described and Height describes is there's this whole 
world inside of us that we don't know what to do with. And so when I came across psychoanalysis that said, hey, there's, there's these things that work inside of you that are shaping and forming not only what you feel and do, but how you perceive the world. It was suddenly like, oh my gosh, like the, the whole new world opened up for me. And so now it wasn't about no more, try harder, do better. It was like, let's plumb the unconscious and, and we can bring in neuroscience here if you want to make it less mystical. Let's explore implicit knowledge. Let's explore procedural memory. Let's explore things like attachment styles, you know, um, and, and, and all the varied things that have emerged from that. Suddenly there was a language and a, and a methodology or, or a therapeutic action of change, if you will, that allowed me to go, yeah, I want to be more like Jesus, but how I'm going to get there has to do with some different ways than just simply buckle down, make sure I get my 10 minutes of scripture reading in the morning, you know, or that I pray in a certain kind of way. That's sort of my description. I think it's, 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 uh, it sounds like in some ways it's similar to what you described in terms of description of mechanisms, I think is how you described it. Yeah. But I would just narrate it a little differently. It's interesting to, to wonder, you know, if, because I, I recognize that too. I've had some exposure throughout my life to Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and this kind of rediscovering of the spiritual disciplines, rediscovering of more contemplative modes within Protestantism. But mm -hmm. I'd also read Thomas Merton when I was a freshman in college mm -hmm. and Dorothy Day and, and been exposed to Catholic ways of thinking, which are better along this behavioral, you know, topic or approach, right? In terms of, yeah. of actual discipleship formation of character, formation of virtue. I wonder, what do you think would have happened if rather than being raised in the holiness, Protestant, low church kind of movement, if you had been raised in a Franciscan Catholic parish, <laughs> like, would you have just gone, would you have just become an oblate at a monastery, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and that would have been the path <clears throat> toward, to actual healing and change, you know, in, in the real, in your actual life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real possibility, you know, again, with the multiple hats we were talking about, you know, there's a part of me that the minister hat or whatever we want to call that, I think another way to talk about that is, is a part of me, a self state that's trying to figure out what it means to be fully transformed in the image of likeness of Christ within a primary theological spiritual language. Then my psychological hat is a self state that's trying to figure out how to be transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus with the psychological language. Hmm. And so I think there are, as you just, uh, you're just, I think, in, inferring or pointing toward, Dan, this idea that within certain religious traditions, and I think even more than Catholic, you know, I might lean into the Orthodox a little bit more there, there that there is a language where theology is a psychology. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I actually think as I've retraditioned my own Wesleyan roots that I think that's actually true as well. I think Wesleyan theology is a psychology. It is a therapeutic action of change. And maybe all are trying to be that in some way, but, but there's, you know, there's just natural perversion and shift and movement away from original intention of some of these authors. And of course, also, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to valorize, you know, old authors. They had their issues too, right? And, and sure. it comes out in their theologies and theologies is... Theology is biography in many ways, as McClendon, one of my own systematic theologians, used to say. Um, <laughs> but I think I think you're onto something. I think there's the possibility that I might have become a priest or 
you know, or a monk or something like that, who can come alongside people and see that transformational moment through things that, such as centering prayer and in ways in which really the unconscious is exposed. It comes to light through prayer and contemplation, where now I think, you know, how I do that primarily is through psychoanalysis. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, a brief kind of nerdy note, but you mentioned earlier that, you know, maybe the reason we're integrating psychology and theology in the first place is that they became deintegrated and it probably had something to do with the enlightenment of the way that we sort of the West sort of took reason and began to sort of worship it and kind of separate it from other aspects of ourselves, which now, you know, the best psychologists and neuroscientists and everybody else and biologists are sort of uh, pulling that back and going, uh, actually reason is not so separate. Uh, and that's also, and a really important sort of front of the conversation between, you know, white male dominant theology and contextual theologies, right. Of like, well, maybe as white male thinkers, we were sort of, we made a wrong turn. And it's interesting you bring up Eastern Orthodoxy because, because of the schism in the 12th or 11th or 12th century between the Orthodox church and the Catholic church, they never really went through the enlightenment, not in the same way. Right. Anyway, obviously mostly they're still in Europe, although Ethiopian Orthodox or not, and Coptic or not necessarily, you know, so there, there are some exceptions, but they're not as influenced by that Western European enlightenment tradition. And so I think that that's one explanation for why, so many young sort of Western people who get interested in theology, go to seminary, go to Christian college. A lot of them become Orthodox uh, <laughs> because it is like it feels to us like a a tradition that didn't make the mistakes that our tradition made. Mm-hmm. There, there are still other things like there's a lot oh, yeah. of pa- patriarchy and there's a lot of right, one right. true church. Bullshit. They got their issues. Yeah, they have their issues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that stuff is all really interesting to me. Yeah. I did want to say this brings up a, a question that I have been thinking about a lot recently, which is like, what are the differences between a religion and a wisdom tradition, which maybe those are the same, and then a scientific community doing work over time? My kind of working hypothesis is that what modern science is doing is a sped up version of what wisdom traditions, usually religions, but I would include maybe Stoic philosophy, Greek philosophy, which is not quite a religion. But these wisdom traditions basically did that in a slower way before they had the scientific method, before they had the printing press, uh, the internet, you know, which can speed up the rate at which People can comment on each other's work and try things out. Let me just throw this to you. Isn't it the same mechanism, essentially, that what a wisdom tradition does over the millennia, over centuries, is like people try things, they figure out what works, the stuff that works gets passed down, the stuff Mm -hmm. that doesn't work dies off, either literally with the people or the smart people, the wise people in the tradition, in the group recognize it didn't work and they pass this down as traditional knowledge. Isn't that essentially what's going on with peer reviewed research just at a quicker pace? <laughs> I like that. I, I agree with it. I think it reminds me actually of John Coe and Todd Hall's work uh, in what they called the transformational view of integration. 
and they want to go sort of pre-modern and they want to go back and acknowledge that kind of, of, of trajectory that you just described, which, for example, is, I think, embodied in the book of Proverbs, right? Which is Proverbs. I love Proverbs, and it's, and it's not promises, evangelicals, right? It's collected wisdom over time. It's not even all Jewish or Israel collected wisdom, right? If you know that book, you know there's, there's voices in there that are not part of the, the Hebraic tradition. They're borrowed from other places. Oh, I didn't so, even know that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, which is such a wonderful example, again, to us as Christians, that truth can come from a variety of places. It needs to be tested, and it's tested in that situation over years of collected wisdom, as you're saying, trying it out. And, you know, so, for example, raise up a child in the way that he or she go, and they will not depart from it. Yeah, sometimes that's true, <laughs> but it's not always true, right? Right. And and but if but if you do it a hundred times, and you raise a child well, as opposed to another hundred times, the double blind study, if you will, to bring <laughs> to try and connect these two, right? Right. Like what the wisdom tradition saw was okay. Between the ten of us, we've seen a thousand kids raised, and. Of the half that were raised well, we might say now raised with secure attachment. Right, right. You know, raised with nurturant parenting styles versus whatever. Mm-hmm. You're you're more often gonna have a good outcome. It's not gonna exactly. but now it's not an if then, and that's the that's the transactional thing that we want so badly because right. we want certainty, we want certain outcomes. Right. We hate right. uncertainty. Right. And we're gonna get to that because that's when we're talking now we're getting yeah. psychoanalytic. Yeah. about the and existential about that uncertainty. We want that certainty, but but what the proverb is not saying is oh, if then, every single time right. this will happen. But over a bell curve, right. now I'm just integrating all right. my language on purpose. <laughs> uh, right. Over a bell curve over time, yeah, you raise a kid well, they're gonna do better. There's going to be a greater stay. likelihood than chance, right? Our, yes, P, our exactly. P levels are going to be 0.05. Right, exactly. Well, and I think the danger on the other side is that in our scientific language, you, like you said, we want certainty. And also we begin to overgeneralize too quickly from one or two studies. Right. And there's a way in which, uh, you know, s- many of my friends, colleagues out in the world of psychology and it, who study religion fall into that trap too, I think. And the other issue that that I think something like a wisdom tradition gets at that sometimes the scientific world doesn't get at is is that you know Alistair McIntyre, the great theological ethicist, who you know basically said one of the problems with the Enlightenment goal was that it tried to decontextualize truth from any social location. So we want to generalize, we want to universalize. And we know now, again, that that's not the case. And so what's true for white people is not true for black people or Latinx people or whatever. And so there might be things where we can share and have conversations, but we've got to go back to, to continually pushing. And Pete Hill, you know, great religion of psychologist. Guest from the uh, Psychology of Religious Fundamentalism episode, another one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> he was here at Fuller a couple of years ago doing our integration lectures, which we have every year. And Pete said it's time for the psych of religion to more contextualize itself, both around culture and ethnicity and race, but also around theological tradition, which just made my heart, again, strangely warmed that he would say that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, in one last nerdy point, the difference between the single study and the meta literature analysis review, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
is that's closer to the wisdom tradition. Yes. We've looked at 100 studies and yeah. here is what we see. It's it's filtering of people trying things over time. Right. I this is one of the ways I'd like to integrate theology and psychology is basically through making this argument. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you it will only really work for liberal Christians because conservative Christians will not want to think of Christianity as a wisdom tradition. They want to mm-hmm. think of it as primarily based on special revelation, not general revelation. Mm-hmm. And wisdom traditions are a general revelation thing uh, to define those terms briefly. Special revelation being sort of, you know, something God tells us directly that we don't have to discover for ourselves in the, in the course of human events and time. So yeah. the person of Jesus is special revelation and scripture is generally thought of as special revelation. If you have a higher view of scripture mm-hmm. and wisdom traditions is it's, it's a general revelation thing. It's like over time, if we are wise and if we are paying attention, we can learn about the world. The world is discoverable and there's a mm-hmm. theological, you know, angle to talk about that, that God made right. a law like and regular universe that we could understand. I'm not sure I believe in any special revelation. Honestly, I think there are ways of interpreting even the person of Christ as general revelation at least whatever we can get from Christ is general revelation. Even if Christ himself was special, but I'm not there. I don't have right. direct access always to Always mediated through something. It's always mediated. So in that sense, it's maybe we don't have to get into a general special argument. But that is another way of, of thinking about this wisdom tradition and science thing mm-hmm. of the, yeah, the big analysis of all the studies, right, is mm-hmm. is akin to the Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how many Christian colleges would I be threatened to be fired from for saying that? <laughs> <laughs> and how many would well, be like, yeah, let's get you on the tenure track here, Dan. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think there are there are Christian colleges on both ends of that continuum, right. yeah. uh, thankfully. I think Fuller is closer to the other end of that, by the way. I, la- I like to think we're, we're more of the wisdom tradition approach. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. And, and then again, I think... An example of that is we have a school of psychology within a seminary. The seminary came first and we came second. And we are more integrated now than we've ever been. I think I was a student, like I said, in the 90s. This is my night. I'm going into my 10th year as a faculty member now. And I can say unequivocally, we are more integrated than we've ever been. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to bring up one more thing before we take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to dive more into the kind of existentialism, terror management theory stuff. When you said that psychoanalysis became your religious language for a little while, I wrote down, uh-oh, in my notes, <laughs> uh, because I think that I'm in that stage right now. And maybe grad yeah. school, maybe that's just like a consequence of being in grad school. Uh, and list, there might be listeners to this show who joined earlier on, you know, a year or two ago when I would use more theological language and less psychological language. And maybe those listeners miss those days. And I do feel like there are moments where I know I notice that, oh, I am going to come back to that language. There is something about the sort of ultimacy of theological language versus the kind of concreteness of psychological language that I miss it sometimes. But I if I'm honest, I do find myself primarily thinking of things through a psychological lens and it's connected to the height thing of reading Righteous Mind. I'm just finding that language 
more accurate for the type of stuff that I want to talk about or want to know about the type of things mm -hmm. I choose to interview people about, for instance. So there's a selection bias there and I can yeah. trans, I can go back to the theological theological language, but I often don't want to because of the things I want to talk about. I don't know if you have anything like as someone further down the road and past that, like use this moment to, to speak to me pastorally, if you'd like, uh, of sort of yes, like, you sure. know, young Padawan, here's what you can yes, expect yes, in the future. Yes. Well, first of all, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, Thank Dan. <laughs> uh, I love where you are. I mean, I think, you know, I always talk to my students about the fact that I think that the journey that they're on, that we're on, is really wonderfully described by Walter Brueggemann. As he looks at the, the life of faith through the Psalms, he says, you know, what you see in the Hebraic tradition is this, is this experience of being oriented, becoming disoriented, and then reoriented. Mm. And I tell my students, you came in thinking you know a lot of shit, and you're going to figure out you know very little. Uh, no, you still know stuff, but it's, you're yeah. going to be really challenged. And that's okay, and that's part of it. That's a developmental move, I think. And it's going to happen throughout your life around all sorts of different things. So this inverted U, you know, this or not inverted, it's a U-shaped curve. That's going to be your journey. Embrace it, love it, learn to live in the joy of being at the bottom of the U-shaped curve. That's okay that God still loves you and other people still love you. That's sort of the pastoral piece of that, I think. I got to give a shout out, though, to a huge mentor in my life, and that's Alvin Duick, Al Duick, um, who was the chair of integration here at Fuller before I came and he stayed on, and he's written amazing books like Between Jerusalem and Athens. His book, A Peaceable Psychology, is, is so very meaningful to me. Al talks about integration as really kind of multiculturalism, and it's engaging in two different languages, in two different cultures. And so the mm. integrator becomes bicultural yeah. and bilingual. And so for me, you know, you kind of learn a language, although I will say that I think my theological language was still sort of at the level of, you know, sort of, sort of a child in some ways, um, which breaks my heart because I think a lot of people in the church, and I don't mean this critically, but have a childlike language when it comes to their faith. I mean, I think just most people have a childlike language for most things. If you're writing copy for a general public, you're encouraged to keep it at like a fifth or seventh grade right, level. Right, right. So right. Right. If that's and true, so then we probably shouldn't <laughs> expect people to like have, uh, you know, a, a complex theology or no, theological right, vocabulary. Right, right. And so, you know, Al would say you come in with this language and then, you know, then we teach you this new psych language. And if we're not careful, the one language will overwhelm the other. Now, I think developmentally to talk about this new language of psychology kind of overwhelming the other one is sort of OK. I'm maybe a little more OK with that. Especially for a season. For a season, right. And so the question is, when and how does that other language come back and enrich it in new and exciting ways? And I will say this, Dan, it wasn't, I don't think it really happened for me till I was in my first job as a professor, that I was able to go back and start reading Wesley, who's my theological grandfather, and to then develop the Society for the Study of Psychology and Wesleyan Theology which is now a defunct group, but it served a really important function for me and a lot of my colleagues at a particular time. And so that integration is just really ongoing, that, that bilingual thing. And, and what's fascinating about it at even a 30,000 foot view is, is again, my friend I mentioned before, Steve Sandage, he now is convinced that measuring people's cultural competence is the best way to measure their spiritual maturity. What? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Because the kinds of code shifting, frame shifting, all of that that goes with being a culturally competent person yeah. are the same kinds of skills we really need to be what I would describe as open, hospitable, welcoming people of faith. Whoa. Right? Yeah, it's mind-blowing. And so— well, it's uh, to, to borrow some language from John Sanders, who I interviewed fairly recently— that's assuming a nurturant religious framework and not an authoritarian or authoritative religious framework, sure, which I sure. also assume. So you might right. not be able to convince conservatives of that, but as a as an actual model, I really that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I'm in, and you and you're probably this way too. Like I'm beyond trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm yeah. wanting to in, to engage with people in in embodied ways that bring them into this. In, in unconscious procedural ways where eventually people go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I don't know why I used to think in propositional language. Now it's like loving and relating and attaching and you know and yeah. all that good stuff. You can take the boy out of evangelicalism, but I, I don't think I can <laughs> I don't think I can take the evangelist out of the boy. And so I always I am ya. thinking about convincing people yeah. of things. I feel in, it. in a way I'd love to be free of, and maybe someday I will be free of it in the way that you are. <laughs> well. um, so let's let's take a break, and when we, okay. when we come back, I'm going to tell you the story of writing a journal entry about um, my death. Okay. So, so if you're tempted hey. to not come back, stick around, listeners. Yes. <laughs> Some listeners of this show support it financially by joining the Patreon community. Patrons of You Have Permission get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month, as well as a patron-only Facebook group, which is a fantastic resource. Hundreds of people taking Christianity and the modern world seriously, to use a, <laughs> to use a phrase I've heard somewhere. The most recent spate of patron-exclusive episodes have been responses to the popular rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today has been releasing. There are four of those response episodes. The first one you can hear from a few weeks ago on the main feed if you want to kind of see what those are like. And then there are three additional ones on the feed. In two weeks, we're going to have Tony back, who's normally my my co-host for or my, my uh, chatting partner for those response episodes. He's going to actually do a main feed episode, I believe, two weeks from today, where we respond to the recent episode about Joshua Harris and also tackle one other question from the Facebook group. So that's what's going to be going on. And I think that the next patron exclusive episode, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be around evangelicals and climate change, a conversation I had with Robin Veldman a few months ago. So patreon.com slash Dan Coke. If you'd like to join, that link is in the show notes as well. And it is $5 a month. And back to my conversation with Brad. Okay, so Brad, in our first half of our conversation, we were talking about, you know, the integration of theology and psychology, broadly speaking, in general. And for the second half of this conversation, I want to kind of focus on specifically existentialism. Existential philosophical ideas, existential therapeutic ideas, some of which I find um, personally just really helpful and really resonant. 
Um, and I, f- I find myself drawn to existential therapy. I will, we will define all these terms, listener, don't worry, uh, as we go. And I just want to, I know it's, it's a world that you are pretty familiar with. And I wanted to basically use our interview as an excuse to talk with you about this thing that I have been interested about, but I'm glad we got to do that sort of first, first half of the conversation around kind of more broad themes. And I, yes. I, I said before the break that I would start with a, imagining my own death story. So here it is. I recognized that I have a pretty paralyzing fear of non-existence. So people fear different kinds of death. Mm-hmm. I know people who actually fear heaven. They can't imagine singing and doing nothing for eternity. There are people who fear hell. A lot of people fear hell. I very much understand that. Hell is designed to be the most scary thing possible, imaginable, especially eternal conscious torment, that version of hell. But what I fear is, well, two things. I fear my life ending too early and not getting to do what I, like a normal life cycle. That's something I have feared since I was a kid. And most of my panic attacks are about that in one form or another that I've ever had. Uh, but recently I've noticed this this additional thing of just like imagining not existing. As, as my faith has become less naive, I would say, as I become open to the possibility that, you know, Christianity might still be true in a sense that doesn't include an afterlife, uh, that I don't really have like super strong proof for an afterlife, although I hope for one nonetheless. And that is the Christian hope is for God's holy mountain to become a reality uh, from the book of Isaiah. I realize it's possible that that won't be the case. And when I get a glimpse of that, that my conscious experience will stop at some point and that I will just be nothing. There will just be nothing left. Uh, it is terrifying for me. And I, I think many people feel this way. I brought this up with my therapist and he gave me a piece of homework and it's called imaginal exposure. And it is uh, a technique I'm sure you're familiar with, Brad, where you it's exposure therapy. It's basically like it's working on the feeling of the dread and the anxiety by you write something and then you read it so often that it becomes boring and you thereby reduce your anxiety around that particular thing. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a mind hack, right? It's it's not necessarily a way of genuinely dealing with that angst, but it is a way of reducing your your symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we also will talk about it in a more in-depth way. I'm not accusing my therapist of just giving me brain hacks and not doing <laughs> deeper work. Uh, right. He's fantastic. But this is just an in, so I, I, I'm not going to read it, but it's I cried twice while writing it. And mm-hmm. already I feel like, oh, I can read this without crying. It's not, you know, I guess my question is, from your perspective, why does something like that work or what is it getting at? Anything around the sort of like this deep anxiety about nothingness, about ce- ceasing to exist, we're now getting into this existentialist territory. And I just want to start by giving you kind of an open prompt to respond to that <laughs> to that thing that I did and, and that that approach and just like what it how how do you think and talk about the thing I just talked about. Yeah, well, the, it is broad. It's it's wide, which you're inviting me to think about with you. 
so I'll, I'll kind of start broadly there as well. Obviously, philosophers, theologians, and now more and more psychologists have been thinking about this issue of what does it mean to be self-aware beings who can imagine not being, right? Yeah. And so it's something that we imagine, we don't know for sure that most, most other mammals and animals don't have the capacity to know, although... I wonder about dolphins and apes. Um, yeah, <laughs> they're too. ridiculously smart, right? Right. We just don't know how to tap into the smartness, intelligence that they have, probably. So, I mean, I think, you know, the great Ernest Becker is the first, not the first person to write about this, but who wrote about it so magically is the word that comes to my mind, actually, about the denial of death and the way that we go through life uh, as human beings, denying, avoiding our deaths we know that we're going to die, but we don't really know it. Becker said, we can't really manage it. It'll be too much for us. I think there are moments for people where it does break in, in a certain kind of way to our consciousness, which can bring panic, which can bring fear. But what's really fascinating in this area is, is Becker began to philosophize about the various ways that human beings protect ourselves from that fear. And that, of course, initially was all philosophically and theologically thought about. Then eventually this field of terror management theory, which is really the, the empirical study of existentialism, uh, emerged. Uh, do people really do this? And how could, we, how could we empirically validate that? How could we look at it? What are the kinds of things that happen when, pe when people are, even in sort of really kind of unconscious ways that their, their death anxiety is prompted or triggered? What kinds of things do they, do they begin to engage in? And I think this field is so fascinating, but it's interesting right now around things like politics and the ways in which the scientists have been able to demonstrate that when people are reminded of their own death, they do interesting things. They, they begin to sort of round, uh, round up their wagons, their own cultural worldviews is what they would say. Mm -hmm. And not only do they, they do that to sort of protect themselves, but then they also other people who are outside those cultural worldviews. And then now Richard Beck, who's part of this group uh, of thinkers, would say, you know, that's a way to protect our self-esteem, to be part of something larger than ourselves, our cultural worldview, which, which then gives us a sense of kind of ongoingness, a sort of sense of transcendence that it's not so much now about me as an individual who's dying, but I'm part of something larger that will go on beyond me. And there's just, there's, you know, so many different studies and so many different ways that that's been explored now. But I think that there's something essentially important for us as human beings to try to explore about our death. And your therapist's intervention is, is one of those ways to do that. Um, we can talk about that in behavioral language, or we could talk about it even in terms of existential language. You know, we weren't afraid of non-existence before we existed. So why should we fear non-existence when we're not around anymore, right? That I understand that that makes sense, Brad. I just can't get myself to, <laughs> to feel like that is that's true. That's right. That's right. I know. And mm -hmm. that, I'm hoping that that will be, that's eventually where I end up. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, well, a lot of good stuff already in there. I feel like yeah. I want to, I want to hop in and, and just like define some things for people. So existentialism is a form of philosophy initially grandfathered in by Soren Kierkegaard, my son's namesake. And, you know, just looking at the, the Google or Oxford, whatever dictionary definition, it's a philosophical theory or approach, which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent 
determining their own development through acts of the will. Now, that sounds exactly like Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard says, you know, you you have to choose. You know, Kierkegaard loved the verse, you fool, your very soul is required of you this night, right? Jesus says that. Like, as you're saying, Brad, we can sort of do things to deny de- our death, our free will. And by the way, for existential thinkers, both philosophers and psychologists, there's a very strong connection between the fact that we know we'll die and the meaning that we make through our choices and decisions. So yes. that those things are intricately linked. Once you realize that your time is finite and that you have some options, then you make your life meaningful by choosing some options over other options. Mm-hmm. And one way mm-hmm. to deny your death to put it off, to, to not think about it, is to not make choices about your life and to just do what a group or a tribe does. And so that's the connection there between those ideas. Mm-hmm. Where existentialism eventually went, by the time we get to the 40s and 50s in France with people like Jean-Paul Sartre, now we've got, we have an atheistic version of this. So Kierkegaard was a Christian and he pu- he pulled on you know, the story of Abraham and Isaac and and some of these sort of absurd kind of, you know, mind puzzling stories in the Bible. But by the time we get to Sartre, it's like, well, obviously God doesn't exist. We've just had uh, the Holocaust, although I think he didn't believe in God even before that. And so since there's no God, there's no meaning and all the meaning that exists is the meaning that we choose through making free choices and choosing one thing over the other and binding ourselves to some sort of course of action. So that's actually one place we might start, Brad, is like that's a tension, right, with Christianity. There's a tension mm-hmm. between Kierkegaard and Sartre mm-hmm. and Erwin Yalom, who's maybe the most famous living psychologist who loves and, and practices and teaches existential therapy is also atheist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and picks up on this that like the meaninglessness of the world needs to become the meaningfulness of our life as we choose in spite of it. And as a Christian, that part is always weird for me to kind of think about. So maybe we can just start there. Like, unless you want to respond to any of those definitions or whatever, I'm, I'm assuming I got them close enough. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I would just say that the, that the, ex- I'll just add to the definitional piece that existential thinkers are really concerned with meaning, as you mentioned, they're also concerned with isolation connection, right? That's yeah. a big part of that. And then of course, death. Um, so those three things are, are kind of pieces that they're, they're kind of always thinking about. We're um, outing ourselves as winter Christians right now, by the yes, way. Yes, totally. <laughs> real chilly in here. Um, and I think, you know, and let's, again, let's go back to our friend, Richard Beck, because Richard has in his book, Slavery, The Slavery of Death. Slavery of Death, yeah. I mean, I think everybody ought to read that book, honestly. Go out and get it right now. I'm putting um, it in the show notes. I'm putting it in the show notes. Um, ought to, so Richard Richard does a really interesting things with people like the theologian Arthur McGill and, and others who are trying to say, okay, with a nod to Kierkegaard and, and others as well, like, is there a way to be, let me just jump to this. Is there a way to be a Christian existentialist? Yeah. And I want to say yes, because Christians have too quickly, now this is just Brad speaking, jumped to afterlife as a ticket out of this life. Yeah. Right. 
And so what we do and what we think about when we care about, I mean, those things start to take second priority because someday I'll fly away whale glory, right? This, my, this world is not my home. My body's an earth suit that I just sort of carry around and it sucks. And, 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 we, and Christians become Gnostics. We become disembodied Gnostics who, who don't care about the body, who don't care about other bodies, who don't care about sociopolitical issues. And so some of that whole debate and anger these days about social justice, for example, I think there are ways in which that's an existential defense. Oh, it's it's for whatever reason, the person who gets the article about critical race theory, for some percentage of them, it appears to activate something about their very survival. Right. They're they're not dying or right. their way of life not dying or something something. Yeah, exactly. Existential sort of right. catastrophic. And it's like, huh, I just thought it was like a theory one lens of looking at history and literature or whatever. Right. And yet it's activating all this for you. That's like psychologically interesting. I'm trying not to totally. be judgmental about it. Right. Right. But it's like, what's going on there? And this, right. that's what you're kind of gesturing at. Exactly. And it, it comes back to one of my favorite phrases uh, from a Tony Campolo book, which I've never read the book, but the title is adventures and missing the point, Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think exactly it is. It's like, okay, we want to get all upset about critical race theory while people are still being oppressed. Like, but as Christians, don't we care about people who are being oppressed? And I think most Christians would say, yes, I do care about it. And we say, okay, then let's ignore this other stuff. That's an adventure and missing the point. Let's just get to how is it that some bodies are treated worse than other bodies? Yeah. What, do we, what do we do as Christians about that? So I, I think that this, I, I think there's a way to be a Christian existentialist. In other words, to live within the reality that we will die. We will die. We just need to own that. We need to accept that. We need to live into it. We need to mentalize into it. We need to practice, you know, maybe maybe existential and, and behavioral sort of interventions like your therapist gave you to, to grapple with that. But let's also recognize with Richard Beck that that death is not the final story. We we do make a choice, right? Some of us to live into the fact that there's going to be something beyond this life. Now. Many of us are comfortable saying, I don't know what that's going to mean or look like. Well, let me, can I pause you right there? Because yeah, sure. I just, this is, this is right where the nub of it is for me. Mm -hmm. As Christians, we say death is not the final story. That's what we affirm. That right. is part of the Christian story. Where I want to locate the Christian existentialism is that we can't be certain that that's true. And you, you said that too. We, we live into that story, Right. That is where, to me, that's where it that's where it clicks in, and this is, I think, fully Kierkegaardian. I don't think I'm going at. I'm not saying anything he didn't say, 150 years ago, but like, I don't know that death is not the final story, and especially living now as opposed to living when Kierkegaard lived, there's a whole lot more. I don't know if I would say evidence because I don't know that there really can be evidence one way or the other for death being the final story, but certainly we know a lot more about what's going to happen to our physical matter when we die. We know mm -hmm. way more than Kierkegaard knew about that. And it is common knowledge that like my brain functioning will stop. There won't be any electricity. And that's probably where my conscious experience comes from. And so it's much harder to believe that death is not the final story than it was when Kierkegaard was alive, 
which is why I need Kierkegaard today, which is the <laughs> irony, right? Like, yeah, right, I need, right. I, it actually takes more courage in 2021 than in 1870 to say that death is not the final story. Well, and this is what's interesting for someone who is aware of the science and who lets it in. The other option, as we've been sort of talking about, is to deny all the science and to right. live as a fundamentalist so that we are not confronted with that evidence of what happens to our brains when we die. So right. that then that's back to this denial of death stuff as yeah. a partial explanation yeah. for fundamentalism, yeah. which I think is also an interesting uh, frontier. Yeah. So let me try to respond again more in a narrative way, because I think okay. that's how we live and function best. So I make certain cognitive beliefs and assumptions that I think ultimately are not to be proven or disproven through some sort of analytic philosophy, right? But as, as Richard Beck again would say, I've had some sort of experience with the transcendent divine that I can't quite shake. Yeah, me too. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is how winter Christians don't give up their faith. Right. Um, or reli winter religious people, if you want to drop the Christian term. And so I have some sense that I am held by a being larger than myself, bigger than myself. You have that sense, and not to nitpick. Yeah. I have that sense. You and Richard have that sense we don't ever have a certainty that we're right about that sense. So if you go there, if you're trying, if you're having a moment of anxiety and you are trying to think your way out of it, you right. ultimately can't, you can, you, you can say things like, look, there's some, there's some good arguments here. This was my experience. Sure. You can sure. get yourself, you, you can be not at zero, but you can't right. get to a hundred. And that is part of, I think the anxiety is yeah. that we can't get to a hundred. We, we have right. uncertainty baked in. That is sort of the uncertainty is where I want to, if Yalom and Sartre locate the dread around meaninglessness, where I want to locate it as a Christian thinking about existentialism is the uncertainty about meaning. It's not necessarily meaningless. They actually are mm -hmm. kind of fundamentalists mm -hmm. about that point. There's no right. God. There's no meaning. Right, I actually think right. they don't know that, and right. I don't know that there is. So right. that's really the that's the the spot is the uncertainty, mm -hmm. not the meaninglessness. That's an act of faith that they're mm -hmm. making that the universe is meaningless. Right? How could right. they know that? Right. <laughs> but we. But I don't know that it is either. Right. And so that's that's the nub for me, and right. that's why I keep. I'm sorry, I kind of keep pushing no, back I on think, that. No, I think that's fine. And I think even in our earlier part of the conversation about sort of living in that disorientation, right? Finding a way to be comfortably held. Yeah. And, and so then we're back to psychology again, right? The primordial mother holding us. Or attachment and, to our own parents that in a way that we completely don't see at all, but affects our right? ability to sit with uncertainty. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so... For me in that moment, it's I feel held by this being where there is a kind of uncertainty, right? I mean, the parent can always drop the child and might, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a good enough God, if you will, to borrow from Winnicott's good enough parent uh, idea. But in that, for me, it brings a certain level of, of goodness and joy and even summer, summeriness begins to creep in a little bit if I let mm -hmm. it. And of course, existentialists talk about this, right? They, they, they talk about finding the joy 
in the meaning that we make, finding life as a gift. It's the monk with the skull in their cell, right? Reminding them this is all temporary. And so, wow, the sun came up and it's blue and there's flowers or the beautiful snow drifts or whatever it might be, right? We don't yeah. have to put everything as in, in, in summer language there. That, that there's a gift there. And so I can hold, I mean, Beck would say, Richard Beck would say, we, hold, we begin to hold this life differently, right? We even recognize that our own identity is gift. And he argues that Jesus saw his own identity as gift. This, what he called it, the eccentric identity in some ways. Even who I am, I don't cling to or hold on to in a particular way. It's gift. So in some sense, I have nothing to lose because everything is given to me as a gift. And so I just receive, I become a person who receives with open hands rather than clenched fists. There's so much in there, Dan, I think, to think about clinically, right? And theologically and spiritually and religiously. What does it mean to approach life as gift that's just been given and will someday will not be or will be given differently, perhaps? I don't know. I don't know what that means, but I know it means right now I can I can receive this moment as gift, you and I talking as gift, as this breath in our lungs as gift, that our neurons are in fact firing as gift. And we don't know what the next moment will happen when we say goodbye and, and hang up. But this moment is pretty damn good. And, and I want to celebrate it. That resonates with me on multiple levels. I mean, it is like it resonates with me sort of theoretically and experientially, the, the sort of each moment as a gift. I mean, from a, a theoretical perspective, and I, I've talked about this before with Sarah Lane Ritchie on the podcast about how, for me, existence itself seems to be a good. Yes. And so in any sort of moral formulation of the problem of evil or any of these sort of issues, like existence counts on the ledger as a good. God creates and says it's good, right? Yeah. But I also There's, just experience it that way. Yeah, yeah. So it, it complicates attempts to sort of say that the world is on the whole unjust or not worth it or something. Because okay. I don't think we know how highly to rate existence and yeah. how much weight to give that. But so leaving like that, that aside, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I keep thinking about the story from the brothers Karamazov to bring things back to Eastern uh, Orthodoxy. <laughs> and this is a, a book written – when was that written? Around 1900, something like that. Mm -hmm. So not too far from William James's varieties of religious experience and not too long after Kierkegaard. And in that book, there is sort of, you know, everybody quotes the Grand Inquisitor, which is the conversation between the two brothers, Ivan and Alyosha, about, you know, theodicy, about whether suffering of a child could ever be worth whatever on the other end. And that gets picked up in Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me as, a, as an atheistic social justice thinker. But the part of Brothers Karamazov that I love the most is the conversation that the woman, the modern landowning woman has with Father Zosima, who is the kind of, he's the main monk in the book. And he's based on Isaac the Syrian, who is a uh, Syriac Orthodox monk that lived, I don't know, a long time ago. I don't know when he lived. I have a book about him that I haven't read. And and this woman, the reason I bring this up, the first time I thought of it in our conversation was when I was talking about how it's harder than in Kierkegaard's day now, because we have all this new science and all these new ways of thinking about things that are fundamentally atheistic or whatever. 
And she basically says the same thing to Father Zosima in her day, whenever that's supposed to take place. Sometime in the 19th century and in all the parlors of, of St. Petersburg or Moscow, you know, the new thought is non-theistic. And she says, Father Zosima, I want to believe, but I can't help having all this doubt. How can I be certain of my faith? And he says, you will never be certain, but to the extent that you live like Christ, you will be confident. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, the Christian existential answer. I mean, in one way, that's kind of doing all the work that I'm trying to do with all my, with many more words than that. Of course, Mm -hmm. Dostoevsky being a better writer than I am. Uh, (laughs) But like, the idea of you, you never get certainty that certainty is an idol. Yeah. And some people have argued that the way we think about certainty today is even new since the enlightenment. That's right. That's right. It's a fundamentalist reaction to criticisms of a religious worldview, but you'll never get certainty and you only ever get sort of like proof in the pudding, so to speak. You start living like Christ. You start closing the door when you pray, you start following the Sermon on the Mount and your life will change and it will be evidence that you're on the right path. And the further you go, the more confident you will be and the more that God will meet you there. And I just find that really powerful. I find it probably true. I find it true in my life to the limited extent that I have been able to do that. And I think it ties in with this Christian existentialism stuff. And so that was a little soapboxy, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit interviewing myself instead of interviewing you. <laughs> Apologies for that. I know that I do no. that from time to time. But I'd love to get your thoughts on on that. Yeah, I, I love that idea of the difference between certainty and confidence. I think the existential position is that we live as if some things are true, but we hold that we don't know for sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, in, in psychological, empirical work, you know, James Fowler has been sort of attacked in a variety of ways. He, you know, he wrote Stages of Faith. I think he was he was naming something that's true and that there again is there's a kind of developmental trajectory of our faith. And many of us stop at a certain level and we get stuck in a kind of adolescent you know, place, or we talked about earlier, you know, childish language, if you will. Whereas I think as my bias is that as people mature in their faith, they become less certain and more confident. And it's, it's a weird, it's paradox, right? It's living again with paradox. And I think to manage that, let me just bring it back to the clinical moment to manage it. That's where I think relational psychoanalysis is particularly helpful because it creates a space where one can consistently reflect on, upon what one thinks one knows, right? Psychoanalysis always says, really? What if? Is that true? Where's that come from? Or the interpersonalist, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> you know, which I think that, that, that in religious circles, that hasn't been a language that's been okay. I think it's coming. You know, Richard Beck's work, I think you think about people like Peter Rollins or David Dark or Peter Enns in the biblical scholar. You know, he has a book called The Sins of Certainty. Um, You know, David Dark says the sacredness of questioning everything. Peter Rollins and all his sort of 
continental Lacanian philosophy, Zizek stuff, which again gets way too heady at times. But I think they're all kind of doing a similar thing, which is, can we live with some certainty? Can we create some meaning while at the same time we say, I could be wrong. And I've become more and more comfortable in my own life. That, that's my story. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll confess things to my wife and she'll say, I don't know that I really want to know that about you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not sure I believe this anymore. or I care that much about it or, but it doesn't mean I just throw it all out either, you know, in a kind of a Dawkins, you know, new atheist sort of way. I, I think there's right. a more honest way to live in that tension, which I think Christian existentialism can, can provide us with. And I think, again, the psychotherapeutic moment, the clinical kinds of things that, again, particularly contemporary uh, analytic thought brings to us, can be really, really helpful in our spiritual formation and growth. Well, Brad, I think that's a that's a good place to end. If people want to continue with your work along the lines of this conversation, where is the best place you would point them, given what we've been talking about? <laughs> Great question. I tend to write all over the map a little bit. Well, that's the multiple hats thing. I know. I, it's exactly I true. It's I exactly resonate with true. That. I've sort of thought someday, you know, sometimes when professors get old and get ready to retire. Someone comes along and creates a feshrift. They write about the person's work. I'm like, what in the world are they going to write about? Because I've written on, you know, psychoanalysis and Christianity. That's primarily been in journal articles. My books are, are really about embodiment. And I've written those or most of those with Warren Brown, neuroscientist, the physical nature of Christian life, neuroscience, psychology, and the church most recently. A book is called um, Enhancing the Christian Life, yeah. um, How Extended Cognition Augments Religious Community. Um, those are probably good places to start. Yeah, I'm going to put a link to your author page on Amazon, okay. and, and okay. people can kind of read the descriptions. Yeah, that'd be, that, what, that's helpful. Uh, I'm also going to put the Richard Beck episode as well as his book, Slavery of Death. and Slavery of the, Death. The Pete and Hill if anybody's episode. interested, I mean, a, a good entree into terror management theory is an older book called On the Role of Death in Life. Uh, well, actually, the book is called The Worm at the Core. Okay. That's the, that's the title, The Worm at the Core, and the subtitle is On the Role of Death in Life by Sheldon Solomon and a couple others. They're, they're early terror management yeah. researchers. I know we didn't define that. I think it was hopefully kind of clear in context, but that is – that's basically the operationalization, uh, is that the word, of of this idea that, yeah, when we are reminded of our death, we do certain things to avoid it, right? It's kind of yeah. turning that into um, it's, it's, a psychological exper theory. Yeah, experimental existentialism is right. how they sometimes exactly. refer to themselves. Yeah. Okay, so that's also going to be in the notes and that Pete Hill episode uh, of religious fundamentalism uh, and the psychology of that will be yeah. in the notes as well. Brad, thank you so much for your time, man. Fun to be with you, Dan. I am very pleased to be joined by my good friend, Sari Concepcion. Sari, you are the Director of Communication at Blueprint 1543, which is a science and faith nonprofit that is sponsoring this episode, and I think we just got to start with, you're the first ever. You cracked the, the shell. <laughs> first ever sponsor of You Have Permission or any previous podcast of mine, like Depolarize and Reconstruct. I've never had a sponsor before. 
that tells you what you need to know about how cool I think this stuff is. Let's put it that way. Let's put it that way. It makes sense. It's sort of a full circle thing if you think about it. Because when we first got in contact or when I got contact with you, it was about this project. And you were kind of like you have permission was still pretty, pretty baby stages at that it point, was. right? Yeah, it's pretty new. Yeah. yeah. That's true. And you, uh, but you knew that I would be interested in this sort of theology, psychology, overlap, conversation, integration stuff. You were, of course, right on the money. And you were so right about it that now we're like good friends in real life. So you really knocked that one. So much gratitude. So much gratitude for that. Yeah. (laughs) So let's hear a little bit about the company. So Blueprint 1543 is the organization that you work for. I think maybe the simplest point of reference for some listeners would be, could you compare it with something like BioLogos, which is a nonprofit organization that does faith and science resources, but they focus on mostly evolution and hard sciences. What do they do compared to what you guys do? Right. Well, BioLogos is very much a public-facing media-producing, resource-producing organization. They make curriculum for homeschool parents, you know, study guides. They're addressing sort of what's going on in the news about science, like vaccination stuff and stewarding the earth and all the uh, the climate change stuff. That is not our primary function at Blueprint 1543. We do a lot of grant development, which means we spend a lot of time working with institutions and organizations, so maybe higher ed institutions and other kinds of nonprofits developing grants that will do uh, big projects, big initiatives at the intersection of faith and the sciences. Biologus is very focused on evolution. Like you mentioned, we definitely skew more towards integrating the psychological sciences and the Christian faith. And part of that reason is because we're one of our founders is Dr. Justin Barrett, and he is a cognitive scientist who helped start the field of the cognitive science of religion. But we also just think there's an opportunity there. There's a low hanging fruit, if you will, for faith science integration. And in fact, we take the approach of it's my challenge as the director of communication to actually not say the phrase faith and science as much as possible. (laughs) Because when you start talking like that, we have a theory that that just kind of reinforces conflict narrative, um, which isn't a thing and shouldn't be a thing. So, but that's always a challenge for me, how it works out in our day to day at our company is that we like to deal with specific questions. Like, what does it mean to be human? You know, it's like just an easy, obvious example. But when you focus on specific questions, you start to see that it can be helpful to draw on interdisciplinary sources to answer those questions. So let's have a theologian in the room, but let's also have a psych scientist in the room or a philosopher or whatever. So we work with a lot of academics who are developing initiatives and and some of those folks, you know, and we consult on those projects to make them more robust. So you, you do actually offer some educational resources though, like BioLogos. And I'm looking at this page right now with five of these classes, which we will talk about the classes more, but just to give people a sense of like, some of the questions. The titles of the classes are On Human Nature, Brains and Embodiment, Positive Psychology for Theology, Human Relationships, and Will, Beliefs, and Decision-Making. So we're really digging into the basics of psychological science at the point where it really intersects with 
what it means to be human and how to be human. Is that a good way of summarizing all of that? That's a great way to put it. For the Theosec project, which was one of our big initiatives over the last few years, and the way that you and I met, the question was, could the psychological sciences become a tool for theologians to do kind of better inquiry into those questions around, you know, theological anthropology is the fancy phrase for it, just what is a human and how to be a human. So we invited theologians from all around the world to come sit in a room and learn about psych science science, uh, over the course of three seminars. And every lecture given by every psychological expert in all three of those seminars is included in these classes in, in different ways. So along with a bunch of supplemental stuff, we wanted these resources and this methodology to be available, not just to those fancy theologians like uh, Sarah Lane Ritchie and Myron Fenner and folks like that who were in the room at the time, but to anyone who was interested. And if people are listening to your show, there's a good chance they're kind of into psychology. So yeah, these courses are mainly around psychological science, but there's discussion questions that will always draw out what might be the theological implications and theological, very broadly speaking, if you're a minister, if you're in a church, you, you might find these resources helpful for getting the conversation going around the sciences or psychology in particular. So these courses are free to anybody. And I don't know who has taken one of these courses in terms of the listenership. I know I've had to do them as part of my grad program. They will send us to some of these like free Yale courses, you know, or some of the Ivy Leagues have some sort of web based courses that are a combination of lecture, you know, quizzes, that format, as I understand it, sort of utilizes a lot of what is known about how we learn. So no surprise, a bunch of people who are cognitive scientists or adjacent to that are are going to kind of let you guys are going to format these courses in a way that we're actually as as participants likely to retain this information. So that's cool. Yeah, there's quizzes there that are very easy. They're not they're just there to help you remember what you just listened to, not right. to actually right. make you feel bad about. <laughs> no, and that's you know, what the quizzes are, are for. It's like if you right. do that, if you review right afterward, you retain information better. They're not yep. graded, obviously. I just I will say this, like having been present for a lot of those lectures, many of which comprise these classes, like, guys, this is cutting edge stuff. This is like, these are working researchers in the psych world sharing their most up-to-date understandings of these issues with a religiously minded audience, basically, with an eye toward implications for that world. It's basically better information than you can get in a textbook in a lot of cases because they know the studies that are currently getting published. And so if, mm-hmm. if you're into that kind of thing, these, yeah. this is incredibly valuable. Yeah. And a lot of the folks who are our speakers have been on, you have permission, if not all of them, May- <laughs> I think oh. all of them, maybe actually. all of them will eventually oh. be on. Yeah. Yeah. Almost yeah. all of them. Bill Newsom that just came out 
you know, he's a neurologist. We have a lot of his stuff in here. Uh, Pam, Pamela King, who was on your show recently, we have a human thriving unit where she's prominently featured. You said on your announcement today, you, you did a shout out to that religious fundamentalism episode you did with Pete Hill. Peter Hill. Yeah. Uh, one of his lectures are in will beliefs and decision-making that course. So, and then a lot of episodes are, are sprinkled throughout here to sort of supplement the work that we did with Theosex. So so there's a lot of a, you have permission tie in. I'll just add too that we are encouraging people to do these in groups. Like if you have a couple of friends or if you want to reach out to a couple of uh, permissionaries <laughs> to, uh, to go through a class together. I don't know. There's no formal way to set that up, but uh, we are encouraging people to do it in groups because there's a lot of great discussion questions after each unit. And it would be a lot more fun, I think, to discuss some of the questions with a group. Or if you have an IRL, a, a real life group of people you know who would be into this, maybe at your church or another community that you that you have available to you, um, we're encouraging that sort of thing. Last incentive I'll add is anyone who signs up for the class in the next like six months or so, or signs up for any course, will be invited to a live Q&A session with some of the psychological science scientists who are part of the theopsych.com or theopsych academy is what we're calling it. So if you want access to that, that's an easy, easy entry type thing. That's great. And they're, they're free courses. I'm, I'm sure somebody will start a thread uh, shortly in the You Have Permission uh, Facebook group for patrons of a group, uh, seeing who wants to go through one or more of these courses together and, and kind of chat about that. I think that would be a great idea. So, Sari, thank you so much for joining me. Theopsych.com is the yeah. link, and that will, yeah. of course, be in the show notes if you can't remember that. And yeah, you should definitely check it out if this sounds good to you. Thanks, Dan, for letting us talk about this. Thank you to Brad Strawn and Sari Concepcion for joining me today. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode. As usual, he is available for more editing work, and his email address is in the show notes. I've got links in the show notes to the Blueprint 1543 free courses at theopsych.com. The link is in the notes, as well as the following five links from my conversation with Brad. In order, Brad's author page on Amazon, Richard Beck's episode of You Have Permission around why hating the sinner, hate the sin, love the sinner is psychologically impossible. Uh, Richard Beck's book, The Slavery of Death, the Pete Hill episode about the, about the psychology of religious fundamentalism, and The Worm at the Core, which Brad mentioned. So all those are in the show notes, and we'll see you guys in two weeks, unless you're a patron, then we'll see you next week.